0: This morning, I want to talk to you about Jesus having authority over the sea. And the story that we'll jump into is pregnant with with depth of meaning and a message here that, that I think is worthy of our attention. So we'll take the time to look through it. But before we read it, you should just know that far from the city of Jerusalem is where we're going to find Jesus right now. He's on the shores of the Galilee. And you'll see in just a moment that what, what's going to happen is going to provide Jesus a break because he's going to get onto a boat. Remember, he's already situated on a boat, teaching parables to a multitude that's gathered, and the multitude had grown so big. It says it gets to the point where Jesus can't even stop to eat. Their demands are are growing by, it seems, the day, and Jesus sits on a boat to address the large multitude. At the end of that day of the parables that we've been looking at, that Jesus taught. Jesus then tells his disciples to push away from the coast and he tells them we're going to travel across the Sea of Galilee and we're going to have a break. We're going to have rest. This is what it provides for Jesus, really, is rest for his body and and a break for his mind even. It's going to give him a moment of peace because he's exhausted, as we'll see in just a moment. Remember, this multitude was massive and and he gets into the boat to get that little break that we find him experiencing beginning in verse 35. On the same day, that's the day that Jesus was teaching these parables we've been studying, when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. Hey, just a side thought real quick right here. It's interesting, Mark will add little details here that don't advance the plot line. Ancient writings that were written not as accounts of historical events, ancient writings that were fictitious stories never added extra details to the story that didn't help to advance the plot line. Now for us as modern watchers of movies, we've noticed that there's a shift where if it's a, a made-up story and it's fictitious and things, one of the things that tried to draw you in to make you feel like it's real, to live in the tension of reality, is they'll add little details to the story that don't necessarily in, just produce or, or advance the plot line. But in ancient writings, you never did that. And so one of the things that scholars will point out specifically about this story is that when Mark gives us Peter's first hand eyewitness account that Peter then tells Mark and Mark writes down for us, that one of the things that proves to us that this was in fact a firsthand eyewitness account is that just like if you observed a traffic accident when you left church today, when you gave your statement to the police, you wouldn't just give the facts. You'd probably say, gosh, it was a hot day. You'd probably mention, like, I just was leaving church, and, and my wife at church was telling me, like, I wish this guy would finish on time today. And, and then we were talking about where we were going to go to lunch, and then when I went to make a left turn, I saw there was this red sports car that went by, and I realized, like, oh, that's that new Ford that... Yeah, I don't know what I think. But anyways, then there was this act you'd add all of these details because you weren't just observing the one little storyline that you're giving a report of, you were observing everything around it. And in the same way, Peter, as a firsthand eyewitness account here, he says, Jesus gets on a boat, and there are these other little boats that were also with him. These unnecessary details. He says, and then this great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat. Think of that. The storm is so intense that the waves are breaking inside the boat. So that it was already filling with water. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Uh, Literally, it's translated, there was a flat calm. If you've ever seen a storm on a body of water, even when the storm ceases, sometimes for hours, the waves will continue to push and to crash. But when Jesus spoke it instantly, it wasn't just that the storm stopped, but that the waves went flat. It would have been a a trippy, eerie moment where they realized this was unnatural what happened. But Jesus then looks away from the sea, from the storm, and looks to his friends and says, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Exceeding. Now, the Sea of Galilee is an incredibly beautiful place. And if you've never been there, you should go. But also your other option is I told you to go to our church website. That first video clip that's listed there, if you just hit play on it, it's going to give you a glimpse of, Uh, a little uh, capture of a sunrise over the Sea of Galilee and then some footage of it on it so that you know what to picture. It's about eight miles wide. It's 13 miles long. It's hardly a sea. It's a freshwater lake. It is though roughly 700 feet below sea level and it's the lowest sitting freshwater lake in the world with the Golan Heights on the east where those mountain ranges, these cliffs on the east are as high as 4,000 feet tall. To the northeast is Mount Hermon, which I believe is 8,000 feet in change. And so traveling from the east, from that higher uh, elevation, is cold, dry air that makes its way down, crashing over those mountains and sweeping towards the Sea of Galilee. But the problem is coming from the west, from the Mediterranean, is a lot of humidity and heat. And from the south, coming up along the Jordan River is the heat that emerges from the Dead Sea and the desert Judean wilderness. And so these two different weather systems collide right over the Sea of Galilee in a really unique way, where this cold, uh, cool, crisp, light air, dry air, collides with hot, humid air, causing in moments, very sudden, gnarly storms, even till today. I have a friend, he lives in Israel, and I had asked him once, have you ever been on the Sea of Galilee in a storm? And he told me about him being out on a modern boat with some of his friends and them fearing that they were going to be run onto the rocks on the eastern shores because of how gnarly the storm got, how quickly it got that gnarly. So even in a modern sense, this can be a little bit dangerous from a very calm afternoon to all of a sudden a very gnarly, choppy storm, which is exactly what's being described here. Through Mark's first hand eyewitness, Peter, who who is there present for these things and later travels with Mark and tells them these stories. Now, here's what you need to remember is that Peter and several of the other disciples, they were fishermen who grew up fishing on this lake. Remember, James and John, their dad owned their own business. Remember, a fishing business is what the gospel seemed to imply to us. So, probably from a very young age, as early as they could walk, they're probably out on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. This is a familiar scene for all of them. They had seen storm systems develop very quickly, but this storm was very, very different. You know, my wife, she's not a big fan of flying, but when we were newlyweds and went on our honeymoon, I remember as we were traveling back home from our honeymoon, we hit some turbulence. And for me, a flight is an opportunity to take a nap and catch up on sleep. For my wife, it's an opportunity for anxiety and all the things that come, just to be tense. And, and so my, it's a point of tension for us anytime we fly where she's like, how could you be sleeping? How could you do this to me? And I'm like, "Well, I'm just trying to catch up on some sleep. I don't know. I didn't realize it was a personal attack. Like, but I remember looking at her and saying, Lindsay, I don't know why you're so stressed. The way that you know if we're going to be okay is you just watch the flight attendants. If they're calm and serving drinks, we all know we're fine. Like, we're not going to die. It's when they freak out that you should be worried. And within like 10 minutes, the flight attendants, midway through the aisle, pushing the drink cart, had sat on the floor, and one of them took to the microphone, and in her shaky voice was like, everybody, please sit down. So my wife gave me a, a, a warm embrace and a quick thank you, obviously, for sharing that information to calm her. But that's the scene we're looking at these are experienced fishermen that are freaking out and when they recount the story they say that they're at the point where they're telling jesus we're perishing they're telling them this is it the sink the, the ship is going to sink we're, we're going down we're going to die this is the end for us they're confident in fact the greek word that's used to describe the storm is a a storm of hurricane size proportions Remember, the waves are crashing into the boat so that it's already filling with water. They're watching it slowly sink and knowing it might just be another moment or two before we're done for. Now, this may not look, if you're trying to imagine it, this may not look like a scene from Deadliest Catch, if you watch that show, where you've got the crab fishermen up in Alaska on the Russian border and massive ships and massive waves. It's not waves that big, but also the ships are far more primitive. If you click play on the next video that's listed on the website you're going to see a scene of a bunch of archaeologists way back in the year 1986 uh, who are digging on the shores of the Sea of Galilee? There was a couple years of drought, and someone was walking along the shore, and the water had receded, and they saw a piece of wood emerging from a bunch of mud on a bank. They dug into that mud. What they found was an ancient boat that they now refer to as the Jesus boat. Now, they don't call it that because they think Jesus was on it per se, but they call it that because carbon 14 dating dated it in the time frame that Jesus was alive, early in the first century, is what it's dated at. The boat is 26 feet long. It's seven feet wide. It's about four feet deep. And they assumed that it could seat about 15 people max, where it would begin to low ride a little bit. And picture Jesus, 12 disciples, 13. It's sitting low. Waves are crashing onto it. There would have been one sail and room for four men to row inside that boat that they found. Now, the most interesting thing that they found about that boat is that there are 12 different kinds of wood that are used on that boat. Which is not the way you would have fashioned it originally but it tells you that these people were used to hitting storms on the sea of galilee and as the boat would begin to break up they'd quickly go to a shoreline and they'd find any wood that they could to patch the hole or the crack in order for the boat to get back on there so these things are used to weathering a good beating but what we picture is one of those little boats very primitive with white capped waves crashing onto the boat. And if you picture it, you can hear the sound of the wind screeching and screaming across the top of the sea. You'd feel the spray of the fresh water hitting your face because the intensity of the wind. And remember, you're in the middle of that lake, and it's dark. There's no help in sight. It's a long way from shore if you're going to try to jump ship and swim. This would have been a really intense and very scary moment. And yet, Jesus in the middle of that is sleeping. On a pillow, it says. It's probably a, a sandbag that was used as a stabilizer on the front of the boat. But Jesus is just knocked out. I mean, how is that, how is that possible? How and why would he, he crash out like this? Well, it provides a really simple reminder of Jesus' humanity. That yes, he's completely God, but God became completely a man with limitations and hunger and fatigue and everything that comes with it. And here we see his humanity. But it also provides great evidence of his trust in his father. Because he said, we're going to go to the other side. And while everybody else is freaking out, Jesus seems to be at rest. So what it does is it provides a great contrast to us between people who trusted, Jesus did, and between those who were afraid, the disciples were. Apparently, two people can weather the same storm and have two very different experiences inside of it. They can face the same adversity and difficulty and find two different experiences within it. Jesus here is resting while others are stressing. And I would argue it's because of the object of his faith. You know, when you think about it, the power of faith is more about the object than it is about the measure of your faith. It's all about the object that you place your faith in, not about how much faith you might have. And for the disciples, the object of their faith was their own ability their own, their own, I guess, long experience of weathering these storms, of learning how to navigate these storms. That's what they were trusting in. And now they're terrified because they know we can't find a way to navigate this. But Jesus was trusting in one who's the creator of the universe, who called himself his father. Listen, the idea here, the, the power of faith is, is not about the measure, but about the object of your faith. It's illustrated really simple. If you're falling off a cliff and as you reach up, you grab onto the roots of a shrub or a tree that's on the side of that cliff. If you grab onto it, it's not about your, your ability to survive that fall is not about the amount of confidence you have in those roots. The Your ability to survive is all about the object itself that you're hanging on to. It's about the strength, the capacity of those roots to hold you. It's not about how much faith you even have, whether or not you really believe it'll do it. It's about whether or not that object has the power and the capacity to do it. Because faith is not about the measure of faith, how much you have, so much as it is about the object of your faith. And Jesus was trusting and holding on to one that was more than capable, the object of his faith. In fact, the point of this moment in the life of Jesus was to show his friends and to show us that Jesus himself was more than capable. He would not in this moment even stand up and call on a higher power or a higher authority to rebuke the wind and the wave, to rebuke the sea. Jesus himself, though, instead, he has the authority within himself to do it. He doesn't say, God, please. He just simply stands up and rebukes it. He had that kind of authority. Now, it goes without saying, but all of us, we face storms, adversity and pain and disappointment and sorrow. And, and it looks different for all of us. All of us have shared in common a storm, unfortunately, in the last year and a half. But th- there's a, a portrait here of the human predicament where there's these men at sea in a storm where their God seems to be resting or sleeping and not alert or, or not aware of what's happening. And for many of us, as we started to approach adulthood, we discovered very quick that there's a death sentence that looms over each of our heads. And then we realized shortly thereafter that the ground under our feet is about as firm and stable as water is. And then we began to look around and what we saw was hopelessness and fear in others, too. We discovered that others around us were sinking and drowning as well. There's imagery here that we're meant to find ourselves in and really simple three points of application I think are worthy of your attention. Three things maybe for you to remember when facing adversity, when you find yourself in a storm. And the first thing is real simple. Just look in the story at who Jesus is. Look at who Jesus is. After all, that's why this is really recorded for us. And we have the benefit of hindsight. They didn't. Jesus up until this point is progressively, patiently revealing himself to them, where they're beginning to see his true identity, where there's flashes of his deity coming, emerging out of his humanity. That's different for us. The, the gospel of Mark started, remember, with his insipids. Remember, it's, it's, it means in Latin to commence, that single sentence that's a summation of the whole book. Remember, it started with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Remember, right at the beginning, we knew who he was, but they didn't. You see, this story reminds us that Jesus was much more than a mere man. In fact, the guys looked his direction at the end of this story and said, behold, what manner of man is this? Like, what kind of guy is this? They're saying categorically, he's different from the rest of us, from all of humanity. He was God in the flesh. Listen, remember, everything you want and need to know about God, you learn by looking at Jesus. Jesus. And God hasn't changed. He's always been the same. Jesus, though, gives us the greater and clearer revelation of God, the clearest revelation of the nature and character of God that you'll find anywhere in the world, which means that God is at least as compassionate as Jesus is seen to be. He's at least as patient as Jesus was. He's at least as loving as Jesus proved himself to be, at least as merciful and gracious as Jesus was in his treatment of other people. And when everything was chaotic, Jesus was calm and still possessed great authority. And things might become crazy and maybe even for you today feel very chaotic in your life. And maybe you like me then in a moment like today need just to pause and be reminded that Jesus is often more powerful than I think and more wise than I give him credit for. That's who he is. He's more powerful than I think and he's more wise than I give him credit for. It's not just look who he is, but look in the story at where Jesus is. That's the second thing. Look at where he is in the story. In the storm, he's with you. God is no longer limited to a place or to be experienced in just a singular location. He's with you. Jesus would hang on a cross and ask the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you could hear the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Again and again, not just the New Testament, but even in the Old, it makes the statement to people who are hurting, suffering, overwhelmed. The statement is made over and over again that God is with you. The hard thing for me is that when I'm overwhelmed, I don't know what to picture. Like, what does that actually mean? That God's with me? Because I look around, I'm like, I don't know where you are. I picture me sitting in a hospital room where especially in a COVID era where no one could come and and pay a visit or or sit and be with you in a setting like that that it's as if god sends a little balloon and says here i'm just wanting to remind you that i'm with you and and for companionship you pull it under your arm and you draw a face on it and you call it wilson and you make fire and knock your own teeth out and live happily ever after and like we really don't know i think sometimes what we're to picture like what does it really mean that he's with me It's telling me that God's not just there in those moments of fear or suffering or disappointment. It's communicating that God deeply cares in those moments. That's what it's telling me. In Isaiah 63, it says it this way, In all their suffering, he also suffered with them. In Hebrews 4.15, it talks about Jesus, our high priest, who sympathizes with our every weakness. It literally means he suffers with us. Modern physics, I think, teaches something about this called sympathetic vibration, where if we had two stringed instruments up here, we just have one guitar today, but if we had two stringed instruments and I were to pluck or hit a chord, on that guitar then the same strings would reverberate on the other guitar without me even touching it physics teaches us about something called sympathetic vibration when i touch or strike that that stringed instrument that the sound reverberates and echoes over to the other one causing the strings on the other one to begin to shake and to vibrate now think about this to tremble and to sing in the same way I believe that when my life is hit or struck by something that deeply moves me, that it's as if the hand, the life experience also struck the heart of God and make his heartstrings begin to tremble and sing with me. That he's with me tells me that he suffers with me. Not just that he's watching me or sending a balloon my direction to remind me that he's present, but that he cares for me. Listen, if you've ever felt discouraged or frustrated and questioned God's connection to your feelings and pressures and pains, then hear me say that our perception of God, of how he thinks and what he feels, it dramatically shifts and changes because of Jesus' willingness to suffer. Because the cross would take the God that I need to be big enough to, as the prophets say, could measure the universe in the span of his hand. The cross takes the God who's big enough and capable enough to do that, And makes him small enough that in the hard moments of life, he meets me on the floor and puts an arm around me and just gently says, I understand. That's what the suffering of Jesus has done. Taking the God who is big enough to handle anything life may throw my way to make him small enough to place his arm around me in those moments and say, Trevor, I get it because I've experienced it. Listen, remember, please. Who he is, he's all powerful, always capable God. And remember where he is, he stands with you, he he hurts with you, he's able to aid you. But also look at what Jesus did in the story. That's the third thing. Remember who he is, remember where he is, but remember in your own personal storm, what Jesus did. And now don't miss this. It would be way too easy for me just to stand up here and be like, and what Jesus does in storms of life is he calms all of them. But if you've lived a little life, you know that that's just not fair or true. That sometimes our dreams don't come to fruition, that sometimes someone's health continues to deteriorate, that sometimes those that we love, they don't rally back from that illness. There's an old saying that gets a lot of mileage in this story that I've heard taught many times over the years. And that old saying goes like this, the same one who caused the storm initially stilled the storm Eventually. And although it rhymes, and if it rhymes, it has to be true, I don't think it's true. I think it's shallow and misleading for me to tell you that God steals every storm in your life. And I think it's irrational and a mistake for us to assume that God is the cause of every storm in our life. Remember, we live in a broken, sinful, fallen world. Surrounded by broken, sinful, fallen people, our spirit is housed in a broken, sinful, fallen body. But our hope is that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, restores things to peace and order and harmony again. Listen, God's not to blame for all of my suffering because I don't believe that God is always the cause of all of my suffering. I wanna be clear on this. I do not believe that God causes all the difficult things that we face. I do believe that scripture teaches us so clearly though that God promises he can use all of it. And there's a difference that he brings beauty from ashes. The Old Testament says, or in the book of Romans, it says that he causes all things to work together for the good. That's the promise of God. Keller says it masterfully this way. He says, if you have a God great enough and powerful enough for you to be mad at because he doesn't stop your suffering, then you also have a God that is great enough and powerful enough to have reasons that you can't understand. It's very true. In our story, Jesus stands up and rebukes the wind and the sea. It's actually the same wording that's used earlier in Mark's account in chapter one, where Jesus rebukes a demon and drives the demon out of a man. Same exact wording. It tells you that there's something very dark and very troubling about this storm and that Jesus' response in this moment was not to stand up on the boat and go, Father, why? Why would you send us into the storm? Why would you allow this? That was not his go-to. What was his default reaction? It was to stand up and rebuke it as if something demonic and dark and awful was behind it. Listen, I do believe, whether I'm comfortable with it or not, that God can cause a natural disaster. He can cause any storm he'd like in my life, whatever that storm may look like. Uh, You can look at Exodus or even at Noah as examples of that. But it's true that I am also a broken, sinful person living in a broken, sinful world that is so broken that it can cause suffering to come into my life. God's not always the author of it. And that there's a demonic power that wants to destroy my life and and erode the very foundation of my faith out from under my feet. That's his goal. And so my default, if it's to cast blame in a hard moment, it should not be to throw that blame God's direction. Jesus did not do that. If I'm going to default to blame, I ought to throw it in the direction of Destructive, demonic entities that are wanting to destroy my life rather than pinning that blame, pinning those atrocities on a gracious God who entered humanity's story to bleed and to die for those who had rejected him. I shouldn't pin it on him. Listen, when I face this storm, though, for me personally, in my frustration, I can get angry with God and I can question his justice, though, because I can say, although I agree that you may not have caused this, sometimes I stop him and say, but I, I don't feel good about the job you're doing and, and stopping it and intervening maybe you didn't cause it but but i need you to stop i i feel like you're not doing enough to to jump in between me and this problem but what do i really suggest that god does Should he stop evil and suffering in the world? Because if he's gonna do that, he has to stop the people who cause evil and suffering in the world, which means he's going to either create a bunch of robots and take away their free will in an instant when they're gonna use it in a destructive manner, or he's gonna snuff them out of existence every time they're gonna cause someone else to suffer if that's what makes an evil person. And by that definition, we're all evil and we'd all be snuffed out of existence or we'd all be turned into a robot. What should he do to intervene? Should he leave heaven and do something to end this atrocity it's exactly what he did. A father watched his son bleed to death on a cross, alone and abandoned and forsaken to bring an end to every storm. I need to remember that he's done so much more than I would have ever asked him to do. The answer cannot be that God doesn't care, even if that's what my question is. Because God became one of us to suffer with and for us, the answer can never be that he doesn't care. Remember, he doesn't provide the answer to my intellectual dilemma about suffering and evil and pain in the world and in my life personally. He does not provide the answer to the intellectual dilemma. He provides the resolution to the problem. He did not give us an explanation. He gave us himself. The cross is God's answer to our cry. Listen, today, if we'll admit it, we find ourselves in the same boat as those desperate disciples. You sit on that same boat, looking around, the crew that you trusted in, that I trusted in, has proven to be a conglomerate of expert politicians, of divisive news outlets, of corrupt corporations. And, and behind them is a long trail of broken promises that they could be the ones, they said, who'd fix all of this mess. And when we look around, the ship is sinking. One commentator I read, he said this. He said, perhaps miracles aren't permitted today because we're so busy fooling ourselves with inflated pretensions of our own abilities. His point was not a theological statement about miracles, whether or not they happen, so much as it was really a scathing rebuke to our pride, our human confidence that tells us we know how to right the ship on our own. The author continued and he said, God never seems competent in our eyes until we discover how incompetent we are behind the false front of our ego. My friends, I think for us, it's time for us to wake the master again and to learn to trust him to right the ship. We need to join who are in this story, the weather beaten vet- veterans here who had the raw courage to admit to the world that their sea legs and their years of experience weren't going to cut it in this storm, that they needed instead to call on the carpenter, Jesus, to come into the, to, to their rescue, to come and to be their savior in this moment. His nap tells you, though, that he won't interfere with your free will. He won't step in and take over unless and until he's invited into the situation, until he's made captain of the boat. The story doesn't say that the disciples even knew in this moment that Jesus could save him, save them. It tells you only that they didn't know what else to do. And so they turned to him and gave him a chance. And in your life personally, you might need to do that same thing today. Okay, real quick before we wrap up, there's, there's a few things that maybe you are more nerdy, but stick with me that I'll move through really quickly, three things that I think are worth you seeing. One of them has to do with the sea, one of them has to do with Jonah, and then one has to do with the first century church. You see, the remarkable thing, I think, is people in the first century were looking at this story. The thing that would have stood out to them big picture-wise more than anything else is that Jesus was calming the sea here, that he had authority over the sea. Because ancient people groups were not seafaring so much as they were sea-fearing. In fact, I fact-checked myself Uh, yesterday about this topic uh, uh, with a guy who's a PhD in ancient civilizations. He actually wrote the book, The Bible for Dummies, Um, but said, hey, talk to me. Am I making this stuff up? And he said, no, no, this is how the ancient Far East viewed the world. Ancient Far East cultures viewed the sea in a very unique way. They viewed it as the hotbed of chaos and evil. In fact, the oldest writings ever discovered are Sumerian and Akkadian texts that talk about how the, the initial cosmic conflict that was waged of good versus evil began on the battleground of the sea. That was the place of the original cosmic conflict, that there's unsearchable darkness and uncontrollable chaos in the sea. In fact, even in your Bible, biblical writers use the sea as an idiom for chaos and evil. Genesis 1, God begins the creation process, and it says the spirit of God hovered over the waters of the sea, uh, over this unformed mass, And then God brings order out of that chaotic scene in creation. It's Daniel 2 where he has a vision where these beasts are emerging out of the sea. The idea is that they're fueled by the power of evil itself, of hell itself. It's Revelation where at the end of the book where these crazy moments of destruction emerge coming out of the sea over and over again. It's the description of heaven saying that there will be no more sea, which all of the surfers mourn over. But that's not what it's saying. It's telling you that that there's no more separation, because that's what the sea felt like for people inseparable uh, things to cross over no no more separation there's unity but it's saying it's a place free of chaos and evil because the sea was an idiom for chaos and evil in the ancient world so the story is about a storm but for the first century audience it was a story about a lot more than that the story is telling the first century audience who suffered terrible persecution. Remember, this is the first of all the Gospels to be written and circulated, written in the 60s, during a time when Caesar Nero is in power and where Christians are being rounded up and mercilessly murdered for their faith. The story is telling the first century audience with great clarity, not that Jesus makes everything easy today, smooth sailing now, but that he will ultimately make everything good that everything will be made right again because Jesus defeated evil, because Jesus has authority even over the sea, even over the chaos and the evil that they felt slave to subject to. Remember Mark chapter one, it told you that Jesus went out preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And the message of the kingdom is not that everything is easy, but that everything will one day be made right again. And so there's a message here for those who'd see it that Jesus has authority even over the powers of hell itself. In the moment, though, the guys didn't see it that way. They're paralyzed in fear. And they wake Jesus up only to say to him, Jesus, don't you care? It's funny, isn't it? Because we do the same thing. We, we often don't wake God up. We don't yell and, and cry out to him just to say, are you aware of these things? We take the hop, skip, and jump to the next thought and say, do you even care? But if they truly knew the depths of his care for them, they could have remained calm even in the midst of a storm. And for us, the roots of our confidence and the love and care for God, the roots of that confidence are found in the cross. The cross is what we look back to. The cross is what is what anchors us. The cross is the thing that allows us. The, the life inside of us to spring up, even in the midst of awful atrocity, to know that we have the love and attention, the care of God coming our direction. It's intriguing to me that the, the language that Mark uses, so I told you about the sea, but now how about about Jonah? It's intriguing to me that the language that Mark uses is really stolen straight out of the story of Jonah. And maybe you already caught this, but there's several parallels that are intentionally drawn here by Mark, where he linguistically uses exact quotations from the story of Jonah, where Jesus and Jonah both find themselves on a boat, both are overtaken by a storm. The descriptions of the storm are almost identical. Both are asleep on the boat in the storm. Both were awoken by the sailors. Both were told that they're going to die. Both had miraculous divine intervention that then would come and calm the storm. Both stories tell us that the sailors were more terrified after the storm stopped raging, then they were afraid when the storm was raging. The only difference in the story is that Jonah stands up and proclaims that the only way to tame the seed and for you to live would be for me to die. He stood up and said, if I die, you'll live. Which doesn't happen in Mark's gospel. Or does it? I think Mark's trying a parallel here. It's only seen if you kind of step back from the story and observe this story in light of the whole gospel. Remember, in Luke and in Matthew, Jesus would actually refer to himself as Jonah, saying that I am coming, he says, as a greater than Jonah. And uses even Jonah as an illustration of the resurrection. Ultimately, Jesus came to calm all storm, to still all storm all waves he came to redeem creation and to restore it back to its prior glory he came to bring an end to all sin sickness suffering and death which he successfully did but only after he stood up on the boat and willingly proclaimed unless i'm thrown in the sea and that's what he did he threw himself into the sea he embraced the cross and the storm wasn't calmed until the storm swept him away it cost him everything he too said if i die you will live and like jonah he would emerge three days later from a grave and now think of this now please hear me now we ought never to say god do you care god don't you care because he did not abandon me in the ultimate storm, the storm of eternal justice. Instead, he took my place on the boat and plunged into the depth. What would ever make me think that he would abandon me in the smaller storms of my life if he took the fall for me in the greatest of storms? You see, I think that this would have spoken volumes to Mark's initial audience, that first century church, who would have easily identified with Jesus Disciples who are frightened and overwhelmed because there's this monstrous, overwhelming force that's, that's weighing on them. They faced an impossible situation, many of them being heavily persecuted and murdered for their faith, but there's an invitation in the story. Wake Jesus up. Pray to him. And bring your fear and maybe even your anger to him. This is where we're done. Listen, all of us, we get this. For every person who's ever tried to live a life of faith, we can identify with both this moment of being overwhelmed by adversity that that we feel like we're just thrust into. But also we can identify with this thought, not just the moment, but the thought of Jesus, don't you care that I'm drowning in this? And for some of us, if we're honest, we've heard ourselves say that an awful lot in the last year and a half. Ultimately, what we and the disciples are really saying, though, if we think about it, and if we're honest, Is we're saying, if you really loved us, you wouldn't let us go through this. If you loved us, I wouldn't feel like I'm sinking. If you loved us, you wouldn't force me to face something that's so hard. And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, why were you so afraid? It'd probably laughable. I mean, if you weren't terrified and thinking you were going to die, you probably would have laughed in other circumstances because it's a ridiculous question. Like, are you for real? Why were we afraid? We were afraid because we thought we were going to die. We were afraid because we thought you didn't care because we thought you didn't love us because if you really loved us, you wouldn't allow us to be in this situation. You wouldn't allow these kinds of things to happen to us. Jesus' question, I think, cut like a knife because it revealed what about our premise is wrong that we should know better than to think that being a follower of Jesus means that we're isolated from the storms of life. That our faith is not that God gets me out of every storm, but that God is with me in every storm that I faith and has power over everything in the created universe. He's capable. Not even the powers of hell can stand in his way, the story tells me. And he has the ability and promises to make beauty from ashes, even out of devastation. My faith in the end is not that he gets me out of the storm, but that he's good and he's with me in it. And if I fast forward to the end of the book, that God does still all storms, that that's my future, that that is my hope. And if that's true, then Mark's invitation is to turn from questioning God today to instead answering his question. And his question is, how is it that you don't trust me? How is it that you don't trust my care for you? The invitation is to turn from questioning him to answering his question and then choosing to embrace faith. My friends, when you face a storm, remember who he is. Mark masterfully uses the Greek word mega three different times in this story to talk about the mega storm, the mega fear, or the the mega storm, sorry, the mega calm, where it goes flat calm instantly, and then the mega fear of the disciples. That they respond to Jesus calming the storm and they're more afraid than they were of the storm. Think about this. More terrified than they were of the storm, they were even more terrified of Jesus because Jesus was even more powerful and less controllable than the storm itself is what they realized. But the difference between the storm and Jesus is that the storm is indifferent to you, but Jesus loves you. Oh, remember who he is and remember where he is, that he's with you. The disciples are both angry and afraid because of the storm and Jesus is remaining silent and seemingly just out cold asleep and doesn't have a care in the world and so they asked him do you even care and for us today i think he responds to that and quietly motions to a cross and asks us why do you have no faith trevor why are you so easily pushed to fear why are you so afraid it's quite possibly that the greatest danger that we face is not just the external storm but is the internal unbelief in our hearts Because if we just settle more on that internal unbelief, the storm would be far less powerful to drive us off course in life. May I remind you that Jesus, he was not awakened by the intensity of the storm. He was awakened and responded to the touch of a trembling, fearful hand that cried out in humility and honesty. Listen, this story doesn't just tell me that Jesus can calm a storm. It tells me that he can calm a soul. A tired individual is who they perceive Jesus to be but an authoritative God is who he proved himself to be, an authoritative God who is able uh, to, to be available to them at their beck and call as who he was. Uh, remember what he does. Ultimately, that he is going to end all sin, sickness, suffering, and death. Remember what God is doing, that he is actively working. And remember where you and I are going. Remember, each of his miracles happened, not just to prove Jesus' power or his deity or his care. Each of them happened so that you got a glimpse so that you got to see what he's doing and where he's taking you. He's ushering in his kingdom where he's king over a redeemed and restored people and place. His, his miracles, I think it's Keller who says it, are not the suspension of the natural order so much as they are the restoration of the natural order. Because he will only briefly allow and he never intended for pain, sickness, suffering, hunger, death and evil. You see, this miracle provides an example of the perfect way that all of nature will forever respond when God restores in totality what he has already redeemed at the cross. Because each miracle of Jesus is not so much supposed to be just a challenge to your mind so much as it's meant to be viewed as a promise to your heart that the world that you and I want is coming, where every tear is wiped away and every wrong is made right. I don't know what you're facing, But if you're a follower of Jesus, I do know with confidence where you're going. And I do believe with confidence that he's good. So the invitation to you is turn from questioning God to now answering his questions. Why are you so prone to fear? Why don't you trust? You know, in the moment the guys spoke up and they just said, behold, what manner of man. This is before the cross, though. We know that. After the cross, one of the guys who was on the boat, John, he would write, In 1 John, behold, not the manner of man, like, wow, I'm amazed at his power, at his ability. Look what he could do. He's unlike any of us. He instead said, behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we'd be called the children of God. By the end of Jesus' story, what they marveled at was not just the man, his power, but it was the heart, the love of God for them that had left them so confident and so impressed The love of Jesus had done that because Jesus took the fall in the ultimate storm. Why would we question him then and his goodness and the smaller storms of his of our lives? Listen, if the disciples really understood and chose to believe that Jesus was both powerful and loving, they would have found that they had very little to fear at all. And I think the same is true for us.